In these unusual times, we're getting used to daily government updates on COVID-19. What to do, and equally importantly, what not to do. But are inbuilt biases hindering the decisions our leaders make and the actions they're taking on our behalves? Well, one man thinks they could be. He's Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science here at Warwick Business School. And in this Core Insights podcast, one of a series focusing on the impact the pandemic's having on both individuals and society, and on how your organisations can survive it, he'll be telling us why. He joins me now via telephone link, of course. And Professor, it's often said that a crisis brings out the best in people, appeals to the blitz spirit, backs to the wall and all that. But you're claiming it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in decision makers. Why not? Well, I think it's not that people aren't motivated to make good decisions. They're they're intending to make good decisions. But often the decisions they make are actually not necessarily based on the most thoughtful model of the problem that they're tackling. So I think the trouble is when we're under great pressure and stress, it's able to explore the range of possibilities that we should consider. So we we need to think very carefully about what kind of problem we're dealing with, what kind of approach might be appropriate. And it requires a sort of flexibility of thinking and a kind of um, ability to stand back from the problem and look at it from different angles. And that's especially hard in a crisis. So what tends to happen instead is that we can get locked into a particular understanding of what we're doing, what the right approach is, and just stick with that, whether it's a good, the right approach or not. And obviously, when the stakes are very high, that can be dangerous. Now, you say our minds tackle the future by referring to the past. Why is precedent not always a good starting point from which to make decisions? Yeah, it's a very good question. So I think you know, our minds always are trying to work backwards. They're always thinking, what's this? Is this one of these problems or one of those problems? And, and in general, it's a very helpful thing to do because we want to learn from past experience. And, of course, if we're able to, in a flexible way, think, well, it could be like this or it could be like that or maybe some further thing, and then to interrogate those, those possibilities and test them and explore them and think, well, if we're not too sure, what, what would be a good course of action that would... Be, you know, would work pretty well under any in any case. That's all fine. The problem is that, again, when we're under pressure, it's very hard to do that querying and, and quizzing. We tend instead to think, I know this problem's like one of these, and when I had and these problems are solved like this. So, so thinking about a, a COVID-related example, one possible way way you could think about the COVID virus is you could think. I know what this is. This is one of those, the tide's coming in, there's no stopping it kinds of problems. We can try to make an orderly retreat, but the, the, the tide's coming in, there's no point trying to, 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 to reverse that. Um, what we can do is, is as it were, make, you know, get ourselves in good order so that we can retreat effectively with as little damage as possible. Or you could think, I oh, know, no, it's not like that at all. It's a house on fire problem. And you think, my goodness, the thing you've got to do with the house on fire is to get the fire out as soon as possible, however big or small it is. So that's, that's the nature of the problem. And which of those you think is the, the sort of template that comes to mind, which kind of past experience comes to mind, is going to dramatically affect what you do. So in, in, the, in the tide case, you're going to think, well, there's no point going too soon. It's just completely futile to, to see the first lapse of the water coming up the beach and think, right, let's get in and stop it. That's pointless. You've got to manage this long and, and unavoidable process in a, in a smooth way. Uh, on the other hand, if you think it's fire, then you want to launch in with all guns blazing as, as soon as you see the first embers starting to spark. 
Um, and yet another metaphor, I think, or yet another bit of past experience that people will be referring back to potentially is the storm in the teacup. So another, and I think this is now irrelevant for COVID, but it wasn't in the early phases, and we're all potentially victim to it, is thinking, ah, I've heard about these viruses. They're always popping up in the news, and you know, mostly nothing really comes of it. I never hear about them again. You know, months go by, and you know, it's sort of faded away. I bet it's one of them. So it's just there's a sense that it's just another of those transient problems that seem rather terrifying but actually turn out to be nothing. So if we take the present pandemic, which in most people's experience is unique, we obviously can't look to the past. So where do we look? Well, I think the trouble is we do look to the past, whether we, whether we like it or not, and that can cause us problems. Um, so I think one of the reasons it's very hard for us, or was in the early stages, it's hard for us to react as a nation as vigorously as we probably in retrospect should have done, is that we aren't familiar with something quite like this, so we tend to think of it in some other category. So we think something like, it's probably like one of those you know, swine flu or SARS or something else that we've heard of, it, which sounds a bit similar to this, um, or possibly it's the flu. That's another phrase that was used a lot. It's a bit like a flu. We know what they're like. They're not too bad. So that kind of assimilation to a past example is something we can't really avoid but of course it can be very misleading because as you say this really isn't like any of those it's really on a completely different scale has completely different characteristics is much more infectious and much more deadly and we're just not used to that we don't we don't have a, a relevant set of experiences to draw on really are we and i suppose by that i mean politicians and key decision makers too complacent in the early stages oh it won't be that bad just carry on as normal so that we fail to make bold decisions that if you like imagine the future yeah i think i think it's very very hard to be bold when nothing bad is happening at the time or or the it's very it, it seems disproportionate so i think a very simple rule of thumb that we tend to go by in our own lives and uh, in decision making for the public good as well as we think well we've got to do things which are somehow proportionate if there's a big problem going on i think big action is appropriate but if it appears that the problem is sort of maybe it's on the horizon somewhere but it's not very big at the moment then it's very difficult to engage other people or indeed be sure oneself and isn't overreacting horrendously so i think the problem that that we've all had is the delayed nature of this kind of pandemic that it starts small it keeps it doubles every three days or so and that means of course it can start small and get absolutely huge quite quickly and of course even worse than that the, the need for intensive care beds and ventilators and the, 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 the loss of life comes many weeks after people are first infected so there's this terrible delayed reaction so that it seems just out of all scale to say shut down the economy if you had 100 cases in, in the country it would seem crazy it might not be crazy, but it would seem extremely strange, an extremely strange thing to do because at the time you're doing it, everything seems fine. Now, I think an interesting antidote to that potentially, which we weren't able to take successfully, but would be to look at other countries and think, well, hang on, what would have happened in China if they'd taken no action? Oh, it would have been terrible. Um, and so, and, and obviously more recently, Italy and, and Spain and so on. So it's quite interesting and a bit perplexing that when there are examples that look like they're a clear illustration of what is coming, it's still very hard to take evasive action. Is the key transparency telling people, well, you may think this is over the top, but here's why we need to do it, explaining it fully? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think one of the problems that, really the fundamental problem of, of human reasoning is that 
um, which a, a very famous psychologist, Philip Johnson Laird, is keen on pointing out, and I think it's very true, is that we tend to imagine just one way the world could be. So this goes back to the point about looking back and thinking, I know what this is. It's one of those problems, a problem, some type of problem in the past. We're very, very bad at thinking, I don't know which it is. It could be this or this or this, or maybe nothing, something I've never encountered before. And therefore, I need to make decisions now based on that uncertainty. So a decisive a decisive person and a decisive politician looks decisive and feels decisive by thinking, I've got the measure of this. It's one of these problems, and therefore I'm going to do X. So the, you know, the, the analogue in this case would be thinking, ah, yes, this, this is a, a far away and not terribly pressing problem. It would be, I, will look, I will look very silly if I overreact, and I'm pretty sure it won't be a, there won't be anything bad happening, so I'll just, I'll just, you know, just, just do very little. Um, to avoid the danger of foolish, foolish overreaction and spending lots of money on pointless ventilators and personal protective equipment and so on. Um, but what we should be doing, and I think we should be communicating, which is the point you made very well, is what we should be doing is saying, we do not know what this is going to be like. There's a possible pandemic on the loose. It might turn out to be nothing um, in, in, when it comes to Europe. It might be very, very serious indeed. Because it might be very serious, this is the time to start spending money on ventilators. It's the time to start moving personal protective equipment about. It's the time to start looking at travel restrictions. Not because we, the government, or we as individual decision makers are thinking, we've got this one nailed. It's precisely not that. It's that we do, simply do not know. And, and individuals and governments are very, very bad at saying, we don't, really handle, we don't know how to understand the situation. But one possibility is this. So just to be on the safe side, let's take some evasive action. It seems sort of obvious that we, we, we should be working that way, but we, we find it very difficult. And you say, quoting Philip Johnson there, the psychologist, seeing only one possible model is the most important error in human thinking. Did he suggest how we might correct it, though? Well, I think he would first of all say it's really hard to correct it. And so it's a deep, a deep problem. But his basic strategy would be to say you've got to actively look, actively search for alternative models of the world. So if you're thinking it's a storm in a teacup, you should spend some time thinking, well, maybe, it, you know, maybe just maybe, it wouldn't. what would it be like if it wasn't a storm in a teacup? What could happen then? Or if you're thinking, oh, we can definitely suppress this virus, that, that, that'll, you know, we just need to you know, close everything down and we'll be fine. Um, you need to spend some time actively thinking, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's really resistant to being suppressed. Maybe it's, well, as soon as we release the countermeasures, it'll burst back up or whatever it is. I mean, you need to actively think, here's my way of seeing things. Let me actively look. Let's put that one aside. Imagine that's wrong and let's search for another, another one. So, so it's, it's extremely hard. I mean, it's basically the way our brains are, are made is to see complicated patterns of information in an integrated way. And the trouble is that sometimes there are several integrated ways you might see them. You might interpret a particular image as a duck and you might see it as a rabbit. But if you're seeing it as a duck, you tend to think, well, it's a duck, isn't it? You don't think, well, hang on, if I look more closely, that might turn out to be a rabbit. You think, no, I've solved the problem, nothing more to think about. But in complicated, real, real, really unfamiliar, tricky situations, that's exactly the position we are in. The world is ambiguous. We don't really know what to make of it. And I suppose politicians can't switch from one model to another for fear of being seen as inconsistent. Yes, and that's exactly right. So this is where the really transparent articulation of it could be like this, it could be like this, or possibly like this, and we don't know which, is so important. Because I think the 
every politician, and it obviously works for us as, as individuals in our daily lives and interactions with other people, we all feel that we've got to say, I understand what's going on, this is the right thing to do, let's do it. And then, of course, one feels foolish and open to criticism if one changes, changes one's um, perspective later on. Now, it's more, more open and transparent and probably better for everybody to say, well, of course, uh, I, this is my, I suspect it might be like this, but I simply don't know. Therefore, uh, I'm going to, first of all, gather more information and keep, keep updating my thinking as I go along. And also, I'm going to take actions now that are going to be put, put me in a good position, whatever turns out to be the right story. So it never makes sense not to get the ventilators. If you think there's a little chance, you might need them because you won't be able to get them later because the whole world is going to be desperately short of ventilators or whatever it may be. So just thinking those things through and just thinking, put the actions in that at least regret that there's no possibility of a total disaster or reduce that possibility as, as, as much as possible. And just to make that whole process really transparent. I think that's so important. But might the problem be with us, the general public, that we want solutions, we want decisions, we want certainty? Yes, I mean, I think that's one of the, re the forces that pushes back against that, uh, the very rational and reasonable admit uncertainty where it's there and, and, and sort of plan accordingly. Yes, and there's no question that it's, it's much more, it's comforting to think that an apparently uncertain world is not as uncertain as all that and that the people who are making the decisions know what's going on, they know what to do, and they're definitely doing the right thing. Unfortunately, I think that is a false sense of security and tends to, tend to lead to the, the, the decisions being less, less well adapted to the problem than, than they otherwise might be, essentially because one lunges to a particular interpretation of the world, lunges to a particular solution, and then powers on until it's so obviously wrong that you're forced to make a change. So you decide... Yes, this is an unstoppable tide. We just have to let it, let it run, but we need to control it. So you're going to take action, uh, in the case of COVID, a fairly, with fairly slow, um, so to slow the virus rather than to completely suppress it. And then time goes by and it becomes increasingly clear this is not a good idea. And it then looks like a screeching sort of um, screeching of brakes in reverse to say, no, no, total lockdown. Um, we, we were changing course. And of course, it's clearly ide more, more ideal to, to start off with, you know, we don't quite know what the right story is. There are two ways of going about this. We're going to try this one, but we're keeping it under review. Ah, yes, under, in the light of what's happening, the cases are increasing quickly and seeing what's happening in Italy. Clearly, we need to change course. Let's just do that. The more one's articulated that at the beginning, the easier it is to make the switch early. And I think if you don't, and, and there is this danger of looking inconsistent and slightly foolish, then we all... As, as human beings have a tendency to just like to dig in as long as we can, and that can, can lose time at, at critical moments. Now, you've spoken about the power of precedent, but also about the power of narrative. In what ways are our decisions governed by our need for a story, that narrative? Well, I think the way we organise our past experience is, is, is in a story-like way. So when we're thinking, what's the story with COVID-19? We're thinking... Well, what was the story? And I think, mean, literally in a sort of narrative-like sense, what was the story with, you know, I don't know, the, the 1918 flu pandemic, say? So if we make that jump, we're not going to tell a very complex story, unless we're very expert on it, but the story might be something like incredibly horrendous flu which killed large numbers of people. It was completely unstoppable. It was, you know, was it, perhaps there was some evasive action that could have been taken, but we couldn't really have held back the tide. It was a, you know, like most flus, something that we just you know, we, we, we couldn't fight against. 
So that's you know, that sort of, sort of story in which the thing begins. It turns out to be much, much worse than, than a typical flu. At the time, of course, it was not really well understood what to do. Some towns uh, in the U.S. in particular made fairly heroic efforts to suppress it. Some didn't. You know, there's, a, there's a complicated story about that. But whatever that story is, one's viewing that as a, as a narrative. There, were, there was a problem. There were people trying to solve it. These were the outcomes. And that's the thing one's transferring across to the present. So that story, and what, what's our role in the story? The story's important because we're actors in it. Both the government's an actor and we as citizens are actors and we were all, we're, perhaps we're going to pull up, play our part to, to press this together. So it's a sort of story of struggle in which the evil virus is vanquished by us clubbing together to, to attack it. I hope that's the right story and I think we might, might well be able to actually achieve that. But it might be a completely different story as with the flu pandemic that you know, we're going to be overrun. We've just got to allow ourselves to be overrun in the least harmful way. But in e- each of those cases... It's a story with, with, with actors and a narrative and a, and a conclusion, and, and that story is potentially very motivational. It tells us what to do, but also why we, should, why we should set ourselves with great determination to do it. And is it ever prudent sometimes to do nothing? Yes, I think that absolutely can be true. It's very difficult to do nothing. And I, I think this is probably not, this particular crisis is probably not an example of this, but there are certainly situations where the best thing to do is, is simply to wait until better information is available. I mean, this might be true, actually, a lot of the time in, in um, financial decision-making. Um, so one might think, well, you know, should I make some dramatic new, new business, start some dramatic new business venture, or should I sell my house and, 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 and move to the north of Scotland or some other dramatic life change or fin- change in one's financial circumstances? And the answer might well be, a lot of the time, just wait, just wait. If you don't know what to do now, don't do anything. And in fact, at a time of major global upheaval as we're going through at the moment, then you know, big life decisions are probably well put on hold because we simply aren't in a position to know how, how the world's going to look, what our opportunities, what, we, what our desires will be once things are settled down. So I think actually you know, it's, quite, it's quite commonly the case that, that inaction is, is, is appropriate. Going back to the point about proportionality from earlier, I think when there's a big problem in our lives, and this probably works at the political level too, when there's a big problem, it's very easy to feel, well, there's a big problem, so we need to take a big action. Um, so that would be illustrated by the clearly massive economic shock that's being caused by closing down the economy, and then a massive stimulus, well, not stimulus exactly, but there's a massive support package from the Chancellor, quite possibly entirely appropriately, but, it's, but you've got a big problem, you've got a big solution. So similarly, it's natural to think, for example, if there's been a stock market crash, to think, well, I need to do some, make some dramatic move, as I need to you know, uh, move all my money in some, some, other, other, in some other form, or I... I need to do some some other dramatic thing. And the answer might be, potentially, well, although some big things happen to you, some big problem has arisen, the answer is wait. Don't make make an action if you don't know which one to take. And in the present circumstances, what are the biases affecting leaders' actions and decisions? Well, I think there are quite a few. So some we've talked about. So there is the tendency to, to latch onto a specific single model of, the, of the past, um, sort of think, yes, I know what this, this situation is. It's, it's that one. It's that one. It was as the flu pandemic or whatever, and get locked into that. And, and another one is the general tendency to um, find it very difficult to to shift away from the status quo. So, whatever, however the world is at the moment, it's very hard to imagine it being different, and it's very aversive. We don't like the idea of having to change. So, this is another reason why it's very difficult, for example, to lock down the economy because it's a huge change. And quite rightly, we don't you know, want to make wild, wild changes um, at will. 
But the general feeling I think many policymakers would have is, until before we've done it, that's just impossible. You simply can't tell people. You can't go to pubs and restaurants. We can't tell people they've got to stay in their homes. That's just you know, completely beyond the bounds of normal life in our society. It's just not possible. Now, once we've done it, we think, oh, yeah, I guess that was possible. That's quite easy, really, and perhaps entirely appropriate. But very, very difficult to think outside what's normal, what sort of routine. So we're very much locked into the status quo. And there are many more. I mean, another is the tendency to, to want to avoid criticism for well, for example, taking, looking sort of foolishly overcautious. Um, so if one is suspecting that a problem won't be very big, then taking precautionary measures and then, quote, wasting money on you know, needless precautions, that's something that actually has a really big effect on a decision maker in a way that is a bit perverse. And indeed, it's not, not unreasonable because in politics, that undoubtedly you could imagine newspaper headlines saying, you know, millions or hundreds of millions wasted on pointless preparations for, you know, damp squib pandemic. You can just imagine that. But of course, the other side is that if you fail to take those precautions, then you have a complete disaster on your hands. And I think one of the biases that we have uh, as, as uh, just you know, all of us, not just people involved in, in, in big, big decision making, is that we don't really differentiate all that clearly between small problems and big problems. So if I if I fail to, if I waste a lot of money, quotes waste a lot of money on pointless precautions that are never used, that's a bit of a political problem and some newspapers are going to be cross about it. But it, it feels, I think, intuitively, not that much bigger or smaller than the, the disaster of accidentally leaving things too late. Now, of course, if one thinks about it in cold blood, one realizes that one problem is a sort of small transient problem and the other is a you know, really major problem with consequences for loss of life and the economic shutdown and so on. But I think as a, you know, if all, all of us as human beings just tend to be, as it were, problem detectors. We think, oh, if I do that, oh, yeah, this could go wrong. Or if I do this other thing, oh, something else could go wrong. And we're not very good at that sense of scale that we, we should be thinking. Well, in one case, the downside is small, but you know, significant. In the other case, the downside is absolutely massive. So what you must do is avoid that one. Um, we're really very, very bad at scale, I think. Is it possible for us, though, to spot the biases in our own decisions and actions? Are we wired to recognise them? I think the key is that we're much better at spotting the biases in other people um, and, and indeed tend to fall into, fall into these traps ourselves. So how much we're aware of the possibility of bias and how much we try to, to fight against it, we will, to some degree, fall into these traps. And I think the, the one model problem is, is really, really a hard one to fight. And, and the reason for that is that if I see the world from a particular point of view, I think, ah, I know what this problem is. It often doesn't even occur to me to think of another um, interpretation because I think it's so obvious. It's clearly, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a flu pandemic from 1918 or it's a, or if we say it's Saddam Hussein, he's just like Hitler. That's, that's, that, that's another analogy that gets drawn. Once you've locked into that particular perspective, it doesn't even occur to you to try and break out. So I think we're always victim to this. And the so the key, again, going back to the point you made earlier, raised earlier about transparency, is that to the extent that we are transparently uh, explaining what we're doing and what we're thinking to other people, then those other people will be the ones to say, but what about this and what about that, uh, maybe to our discomfort. And I think we are quite good at spotting other ways things could be, holes in each other's arguments, failures to notice that one problem is a small problem and another problem is a really huge problem. Those things we're quite good at spotting in others. So getting us 
to debate and talk and openly discuss is so important. Now, we've talked about decision-making at the highest level, but obviously there are lots of tiers of decision-making below that. So in the current pandemic, what about those scientists saying one thing and others saying another, one deciding X on the basis of the modelling, another deciding Y after looking at different data? Well, I think it's certainly true that trying to piece together all the different um, perspectives of all the different people in something as complex as, say, the NHS is unbelievably complicated. And the miracle is that it works as well as it does. I mean, it really is a quite astounding that such a, l- a large, complicated organization with so many people with so many different perspectives can still work in a fairly integrated way and more or less deliver the things it's supposed to deliver, even against you know, enormous odds. So that's remar- a remarkable thing. And I think one of the things that makes us good at doing that is that when we're in the context of an organization, we're actually quite good at putting our biases aside. So I might think, as a doctor, I might think, well, I'm not quite sure that we should be prioritizing this type of patient or that type of patient, or possibly I'd, have, I'd be doing a little bit more testing of medical staff or a bit less testing of medical staff. But nonetheless, I'm in this situation where these are the rules, this is the way we've decided to do it, so we'll do that. And the worst thing that can happen is everybody has their own bias and tries to operate on it, and sort of then you, then you really, really will have total mayhem. So I think it's actually a remarkable fact about human beings that we're amazingly good at thinking, well, I think this, but we collectively have decided that we'll do that. And that allows us to, um, allows us to actually pull together in the same direction. Now, of course, the downside of that, although the, the upside is very, very important, the downside of that is if the direction from the center isn't right, it won't be overridden from below. So the, the, the mistake, if there's a sort of misunderstanding of the, the scale of the problem or how to tackle it from, from the top, it's very difficult for the rest of the, the system, as it were, to, to, to overpower, overcome that. Um, so we, we sort of have to put in the same direction. If we're being told to go in the wrong direction, then we'll tend to go in the wrong direction, possibly with quite a lot of kicking and screaming. But I think it's sort of inevitable that to be harmonious at all and not to just collapse into complete chaos. Big organizations and, and the individuals within them have to sort of toe uh, the, the line that they're given by the government. So finally, what's your advice as a behavioral scientist to decision makers in the current pandemic? I'd say two things, one about the decision-making process and the other about assumptions about people. So the first thing about decision-making is, is the point that you raised earlier, which is to be as transparent as possible with the public and internally and to make as much of the, quote, workings of your decision-making as, as visible to the scientific community and the policy community as, as possible. Because only through exposure to, as it were, crossfire and hostile perspectives and alternative ways of seeing things that it's becomes clear when the decision-making is really robust and strong and when it's rather open to challenge. So I think trying to be as open as possible is really important, and it's clearly very difficult because the more one opens up one's decision-making, the, the more it is likely not to look completely watertight and completely certain, because it isn't, because it, 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 these things are inherently difficult. So I think just being as open as possible in about the decision-making process and the evidence behind it is is, is very important. And, and the, you know, many of the aspects of the government's processes have been open you know, reasonably soon after the decision has been made, things relevant information has been published and so on, that more of that is good. And in terms of thinking about the population at large, I think it's very easy for decision makers, particularly in moments of crisis, to think that what is needed, or one of the things that's needed, is sort of swinging restrictions and the threat of 
of punishment to keep people in line. So it's easy to think, oh, they're a recalcitrant lot, the British public. You know, they'll do the opposite of what you tell them if, you, if they give a, get, get half a chance. And we need to, need to tell them very clearly that they will, that will not be tolerated. Now, I'm not saying that there's no role for that, but it's much more important. And I think a lot of politicians actually intuitively understand this very well. It's much more important to make it clear to all of us why what's being done is being done, why it's a good idea, and that we have a, each of us has a crucial part to play. And I think actually the, 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 much of the messaging of the government has been recently been spot on on this. It's handing sort of responsibility to, to all of us sort of, to, to, to work for the collective good. And people are really rather good at that. So it's not the case that people are, are selfishly or rushing, or thinking, I can nip to the beach if no one's looking and I, I'm wanting to you know, flout, flout any rule I'm given. M- the vast majority of people will be very happy to do something that's for the collective good and to make sure the people around them do as well, if it's really, really clear what they're supposed to be doing and why it's a good idea. Nick, thank you. Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.